Welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. I'm really excited today to have on with me a New York Times bestselling author and the Wall Street Journal's deputy editor for enterprise and investigative reporting projects, Mr. Sam Walker, to talk about his new book, The Captain Class, where he answers the question of what are the greatest sports teams of all time. He then takes things a step deeper and determines that the captains of these teams were the driving force behind their success. And he uncovers seven common traits of elite captains, dissecting their qualities, talking about mindset and emotional intelligence, as well as getting into the psychology and science of it all. It's really a phenomenal, phenomenal read. Um, One of my favorite qualities is the, or traits that he describes, is the willingness to do thankless jobs in the shadows. Um, Really amazing stuff because it highlights the myth around the star player always being the captain, which isn't always the case. So I really enjoyed this interview. The book is phenomenal. If you're a doctor, strength coach, nutritionist, entrepreneur, if you're trying to just improve your mental game or even physical game, this is a really great great look at all the traits of real, real high performers ever. Uh, So hope you enjoy the interview today. As always, find my layups and performance hacks at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. We are still doing our giveaway $250 gift prize pack. Um, please leave us a review on iTunes, Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, and you'll be eligible for that $250 price pack full of bone broth, superfoods, supplements, resources, books, etc. And of course, if you hashtag Dr. Bub's PP on Instagram or Twitter, you will automatically receive my free ebook, the Keto Quick Start Guide 35 page ebook to jump into a keto lifestyle. Fantastic. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Sam Walker, the Wall Street Journal's deputy editor for Enterprise, helping to direct the paper's in-depth page one news features and investigative reporting projects. A former sports columnist, Walker founded the journal's prize-winning daily sports pages in 2009 and oversaw the paper's global coverage of sports news and major events across all print editions and digital platforms. He is the author of Fantasyland, a best-selling account of his attempt to win America's top fantasy baseball expert competition of which he is a two-time champion. And Sam attended the University of Michigan and lives in New York with his wife and two children. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Mark, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Not, no problem at all. Well, Sam, listen, I first heard you speak at the Leaders in Performance Conference out in LA at the Red Bull High Performance Center uh, about your new book, The Captain Class. And immediately, it really drew me in for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, you know, I'm a huge sports fan. And of course, a book about the greatest sports teams of all time was a was an easy fit. Number two, uh, your dissection of the qualities of leaders as well as some of the myths. And of course, uh, number three, how you layer in the, the behavior and the science and motivation and emotion, et cetera, which is really fascinating. So you know, how did you get the idea to write this type of book? Well, you know, I started out uh, at the journal and I, I really got the idea in 2004 when I was writing my first book and I spent a lot of time with the Boston Red Sox. And, you know, over the course of that season in 2004, I mean, they started out as a really kind of ragtag, undisciplined, uh, slightly out of control group of players. Uh, the Red Sox, you know, kind of prized these undervalued players who had skills that weren't 
uh, really marketable in the rest of baseball. And, you know, I just kind of took them for a bunch of, you know, kind of yahoos who didn't really have the discipline that I'd seen on the other great teams that I'd been around. And, uh, you know, I didn't think that much of them. And, you know, in July, they fell nine and a half games behind the Yankees and everyone had kind of written them off. Uh, but then something happened to this team. I, you know, it was just kind of a miraculous turnaround and they really became a lot more focused and a lot more um, confident and they had sort of swagger about them and they started winning and they won and won and they squeaked into the playoffs and then they um, fell behind the Yankees three games to none in the American League Championship Series, but then rallied in this famous historic comeback to beat them. And then they swept the Cardinals in the World Series. So, you know, it just made me realize that all the time that I'd spent as a sports writer studying the greatest teams and being around great teams, I, I never really understood how they got there and, and what how that moment where they turn toward greatness, you know, what, what that involves. So, you know, I, I'd always, you know, had a million sort of bar stool debates about what the greatest teams in sports history were. So I thought, you know, I'm going to just do a really objective, full, comprehensive study to, to name the best teams in the history of sports, you know, and after doing that, I figured, you know, I'm going to take this sample group and I'm going to look at them and I'm going to see if there's some common element or something, about these great teams that allowed them to um, to make that turn that I'd seen in the in the Red Sox. So, you know, I it just became this massive project. I had no idea how hard it would be. I mean, it, it, not just just the basics. I mean, what's a team? You know, is a, is a track relay team a team? Is a you know is, is a, a boxing Olympic boxing team a team? I mean, all the people compete individually. So, I had to figure that out, and then I had to. Uh, uh, to go from there and, and really look at every team in the history of sports to, to, to narrow down my list. Um, and, and, you know, once I did that, you know, I kind of went in cold and I said, all right, what are the things that could propel a team toward greatness? And I looked at everything. I mean, do they have a superstar? Did they have a great, you know, aggregation of talent? You know, did they have a great strategy? Did they have a, a lot more money than everyone else? Did they have a great coach? And, um, you know, I, I went through, meticulously looked at all these teams and realized none of those things were true. I mean, they were true in some cases and not in others. Um, But there was really only one thing they all had in common, which was really obvious when when you looked at it, um, which is the the character, the peculiar character of the, of the player who led the team, uh, the captain of the team. And, and, you know, I, I kind of, it was a kind of a eureka moment. I mean, it just seemed very obvious that, that this was the one thing that they all, uh, the only thing that they all had in common. Yeah, it's amazing your treatment of all the going through all the teams in, in history there, and it's going through oh, your selection yeah. process, which is which is massive. And of course, I'm a basketball guy, and um, you know, you've got a great quote from Bill Russell that reads, "You know, my ego demands for myself the success of my team." So, can you talk a little bit about Bill and his his leadership style and those legendary teams, Celtics teams of the '50s and '60s? Yeah, no, the Celtics were one of the first teams that I really explored because. I really think they are, their record is the most impressive record of any team I'd ever seen. I mean, they won 11 titles in in 13 seasons, including a streak of eight in a row. But beyond that, I mean, there were a couple of things that were really remarkable about that team. One was, yeah, they weren't statistically exceptional. I mean, they'd never had a great player who was considered one of the greatest in NBA history by any, you know, measures and even the most advanced uh, 
statistics that basketball uses. They never had anyone who was great. They never had anyone really lead the NBA in scoring. They, they just never, they weren't statistically remarkable. Even their record during the regular season, what didn't compare to the Bulls of the 90s or some of the other great dynasties. So that was amazing. I, mean, I just couldn't believe this team was so accomplished and yet wasn't statistically uh, exceptional. And the other thing that was fascinating about them was, you know, they played in the playoffs, they played 10 times they came to a, a winner or a winner go home game seven. And they won all 10 of them, which is That's astonishing. Yeah. I couldn't believe that. I mean, that is something beyond you know uh, any any statistical measure i mean that's really the sign that that they had a, a chemistry i mean you know you don't you don't win your 11th championship because 10 won't do you know what i mean it was just clearly this team was there was something about its culture and the way it um operated that allowed it to to be much better than the sum of its parts so i was fascinated and you know i, I bill russell was so is such an interesting character because, you know, he was so unusual at the time, you know, and a lot of it, I think people chalked up to the very difficult racial climate of the times. And, you know, Russell endured incredible discrimination and uh, racism during his career. And I think people assumed that his character had been formed by that. And, you know, but he was very hard to deal with. I mean, he was, he was very prickly. He was very antagonistic toward the fans and, um, uh, not didn't care at all about his public image or endorsements or all the things that NBA players care about today. Um, but what was astonishing about Russell was, you know, I went back and looked at the first championship because that's kind of my focus is when these teams made the, the transition to greatness. And, gotcha. you know, I, I found this great story. I, I, I didn't know about it. It was called um, the Coleman play. And, you know, there's no videotape of this, of this game, unfortunately, but, the the story goes that the the it was 40 seconds left in in regulation and uh the the Celtics were leading by a point and uh Russell got a rebound and just sort of charged down the court and tried to dunk the ball and missed um and wound up underneath his own basket and the Hawks very smartly made a quick um inbound pass to midcourt to this forward named Jack Coleman who was sort of cherry picking, you know, at mid court behind everybody else. He caught the ball. He had a clear path to the basket. He was at mid court or a little, you know, farther than that. And he had a running start. So Russell was underneath his own basket and took off. You know, no one would have even thought that anyone had a chance to block the shot, but Russell covered the entire distance in the same time it took Coleman to go half as far and he came up behind him and swatted the ball away and everyone who saw it said this was the most incredible physical act they'd ever seen on a basketball court and you know that turned the game around I mean they went to double overtime but the Celtics won in the end and that was their first title that was a game seven the first I think it's the first game seven in NBA history you know he was a rookie and and this was just like an act of it wasn't a it wasn't just that it was an incredible physical feat. Russell was incredibly fast, but you know, just the fact that he even thought to do that, you know, when all of his other teammates had basically just given up. And, you know, the more I looked into Russell, the more I realized, yeah, you know, he would throw up. 
he would go to the locker room and he would throw up before almost every game. And in fact, if it was a tough game and, and he didn't throw up, his teammates would tell him to go to the locker room to throw up because they were worried that he wasn't focused enough. And, you know, there are all these little incidents that, that added up. I mean, you know, he once, there's a story, it's just one person's account, but they said that he tried to break up a fight during the playoffs in um, Los Angeles and was stabbed in the arm. And, you know, had them tape up the arm and went and didn't say a word and went out and played the entire game, uh, you know, with a bandage around his arm and, and they won, you know, and, and it's just this kind of incredible doggedness and commitment, you know, and, and what I realized about Russell was a couple of things. One, his teammates loved him. I mean, his teammates just, you know, thought he was the, the greatest guy in history, whereas the public, you know, really thought he was a grouchy malcontent and didn't understand why he had so much animosity toward uh, the fans and everybody else except for his teammates. And, you know, Russell um, hated individual uh, accolades. I mean, this is a common thread among all of these captains. I mean, he he didn't care about any individual awards. And, you know, in fact, he he insisted, he, he, he told the Celtics when they wanted to retire his jersey that he didn't want the fans there. He said, I'll do a ceremony, but it's just my teammates. And he very famously turned down an invitation to the Hall of Fame when he was inducted because he, you know, he later said that he thought that, you know, the Hall of Fame is this institution that honors individuals, but he felt that his career was a, a symbol of team play. And that was, that was uh, years really, later, wasn't it? Uh, the, uh, that he yeah, yeah. Did that, wasn't it? Yeah, like four years later, I think, after after he was, uh, well, he, he didn't say that until many years later, but uh uh, but you know the other thing about Russell, which is fascinating, is when you look at him, you know he the way he's very unconventional and defensive, you know, in public. But it was very consistent with the way he played basketball because you know at the time, you know, you weren't supposed to leave your feet, you know, when you were playing defense, and you know he he you weren't supposed to try to block shots, you know, like he did, and, and he played a completely different style of basketball than an NBA big man. He didn't score much. He wasn't. The, the team's central offensive weapon, but he set picks and he um, played aggressive defense. He kind of did whatever needed to be done to win. And, you know, that mentality, that defensive sort of team first mentality was the same that he, that he had in public. So it was really a very consistent person. And a lot of people thought he was a great basketball player and a defective human being, but it's not true. I mean, he was the same, he had the same principles on and off the court. So he he just really I realized then that I was onto something because he was so unconventional and so different from the norm um, that I started to think well maybe that that extreme personality was was related to the extreme success of the team and from there I think all the pieces sort of fell into line with the other teams and captains. Yeah, it's really fascinating how you you know you list the seven traits of elite captains, and of course the extreme doggedness which Russell exuded was one of those. And um, you also highlight uh, Carlos Puyol of Barcelona and how how he sort of fits that bill as well. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, Puyol's story? Puyol is such a fascinating character. So he he was not a prodigy. I mean, you know, a lot of these captains, it's fascinating. Some of them were stars, but most of them really were average athletes and really had to struggle to to break into the elite ranks. And I mean, he didn't come to Barcelona's um, youth academy until he was 17. And even then, you know, he really had to fight to get, to get in. And, you know, at one point they'd basically given up on him and they were going to sell him to Malaga, you know, a, a kind of low level Spanish team. And he just refused to go. So I'm not leaving. Cause he was 
born in, in uh, Catalonia and he was uh, you know, a real fan and supporter of the team, didn't want to leave. So, you know, Puyol was just, they didn't know what to do with him. First of all, he, he kind of looked strange. He had his long curly hair and he, and he, you know, kind of looked a little bit like a caveman and he played in this kind of incredibly dogged style, even though he wasn't that fast and wasn't very clever with the ball. Um, they didn't really know what to do with him and they had tried him at different positions. They didn't think he had the speed to play wide on defense. Um, and, and, you know, so he got his big break in 2000 when, uh, Barcelona played this incredibly tense, famous game. Uh, it was the first time they played Real Madrid after Luis Figo, who had been at Barcelona, had transferred to Real Madrid, which was a huge scandal because those teams hate each other. Sure. So the coach, the coach at the time, decided that that they would um, they needed someone to mark Figo, and you know everyone thought it would be one of the regular starters, but um, the coach decided to try Puyol because they knew he was dogged and relentless and cared desperately that uh, about winning the game. So they put him in, and and it was just this remarkable match. I mean, if you go back on YouTube and watch it, I mean, the fans were screaming of hatred, you know, for Figo, and Puyol just played out of his mind and just completely shut. Figo down in, in humiliating fashion, and they won the game. And from that moment, I mean, everything just changed. I mean, he became kind of a, a hero in, in Spain, but he, um, you know, he he became the rock of that defense, and he played central defense. You know, but he was such a weird guy because he was so humble, and he he wasn't talented. He just was all grunting effort, and he cleaned up all of their mistakes and. Uh, you know, he took shots to the face and, you know, he, he would, you know, have head collisions, you know, heading, heading the ball and he'd go over and they would staple his, you know, cuts closed and he would run back in. I mean, he was just a complete uh, picture of, of slobbering effort, you know, on a team that was very technical and um, a little fragile. And you know, he just, he was the kind of leader, the same kind of leader as Russell. I mean, he just, he was completely devoted to the goals of the team and whatever needed to be done. And he rode his teammates when they were slacking, he never let up. And, uh, you know, he was, he was elected captain, um, by his teammates and in typical style, this is very typical of the captains. He, uh, it was unanimous that he should be the captain, but the only dissenting vote was his because he thought <laughs> That's great. it was unethical to vote for other people. So it kind of gives you a little window into the character of these captains. Yeah, it's amazing as well because, uh, you know, like you mentioned, he was sort of quiet on the in public, but amongst his team and on the pitch, I mean, the guy just wouldn't stop uh, chattering and, and talking, right? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think a lot of things surprised me about these captains. But I think one of the biggest surprises was uh, when I, I talked to all of them, you know, who were alive and asked them about their approach to communication. And, you know, they did not give speeches. Everybody thinks that, you know, a captain or a leader needs to stand up in front of the group and, and give a rousing speech and say inspirational things. They absolutely did not do that. Some of them like Yogi Berra, I mean, it was probably incapable of doing something like that because he just wasn't, you know, wasn't that kind of person. But, um, a lot of them said they purposely avoided it. They just never addressed their teammates. But what they did was fascinating. They, they, I call it practical communication. I think that's the best way to explain it. I mean, they, they talked within the context of the team and during games, they talked constantly and they circulated widely among the team and they, you know, some of them never shut up on the pitch. I mean, or, or during the, on the court. I mean, they, they, 
they really spoke um, constantly. And you know, but but it wasn't it wasn't platitudes. I mean, it was really just like talking about practical things as they were happening. And it was this constant form of communication and making corrections in the moment. And that was something that they all, uh, they all had. And, and it kind of runs against our, our ideas of how leaders are supposed to communicate. Absolutely. And, you know, another trait that you discuss is this idea of aggressive play that really sort of tests the limits. And you, you know, you talk about the work of psychologist Arnold Buss, um, from the University of Pittsburgh in the late 1960s, and the distinction between this hostile and instrumental aggression. Can you can you highlight the difference for listeners and, and maybe give us an example? Yeah, that was another fascinating thing about these captains. I, I just was really surprised. I didn't know how to how to judge it. I mean, a lot of them really, uh, you know, broke the rules sometimes and played right up to the edge. And you know, some of them had reputations for being sort of dirty players. And I did, I didn't know how to square that. So I started looking into the, to the academic uh, studies that have been done about aggression. And I realized that Bus, you know, being the first person to sort of note this, um, uh, since then, uh, behavioral psychologists have found that th- there really are two kinds of aggression, and they, they're, they're not the same. And, and one is what they call hostile aggression, which is, you know, driven by a desire to injure someone or harm somebody. And uh, that is, you know, we see that a lot in, in sports, you know, and a lot of athletes off the field get into trouble. I think they have this sort of hostile aggression. But um, there's another form of aggression, which is called instrumental aggression. And they, you know, they define it as it could be something that causes harm to someone, but harm isn't the goal. The goal is is something worthwhile. And in the case of a team context, it's winning. And, you know, I think these captains understood that you know, there was a difference. And what was really interesting about them was none of these captains ever got into any trouble off the field. I mean, in fact, they were homebodies for the most part. I mean, a lot of them were clearly introverts and they, and they really didn't have a public life or want to have a public persona. Um, but in competition, they were different. I mean, they were very aggressive and they could do very aggressive um, things. And, you know, I, I think we see a lot of athletes who, um, you know, they're aggressive on the field, but they're also aggressive off. And, and they get in trouble and they get in fights and they they uh, they don't shut it off. But these captains, you know, understand that there was a point there was a uh, that when they're in the context of sports and the rules of sports apply, then their job is to push those rules to the absolute limit, you know, and to try to get away with it to help their teams. And but they realize that once the game was over, then they revert back to the rules of polite society where you don't do aggressive things and you don't do things that could harm people. And they all kind of understood that. And that was, that was really a revelation. I mean, I think, um, the, the, a lot of, a lot of people have, have, you know, challenged me on this because they say, well, that's not sportsmanlike and that's not something you want to teach people, um, about sports. And, you know, this, it's true. And, and some of the things they did were very unsportsmanlike and, you know, not commendable, um, but the fact is, you know, that they they didn't care. I mean, they didn't care what the public thought. I mean, their goal was to, to win. And if the public was going to call them dirty players or cheats, they 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 were fine with that. I mean, the goal was to win and on the on the field. Um, but, you know, their behavior, their behavior changed when they weren't on the field. I mean, they understood the difference. And um, it's something that that I think needs we need to have a, a, a bigger conversation about because, you know, there is sportsmanship is important and uh but i think it's overemphasized and i think we we have to look at the context of the rules 
And one of my favorite examples I, is Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady, you know, the Patriots didn't make my list because they weren't really – their record wasn't really distinct from the San Francisco 49ers. But, um, but Brady's a, a great example of this type of character. And, you know, this, this deflate gate situation where he allegedly deflated the balls to make them easier to grip. I mean, yep. you know, this is standard behavior for these guys. I mean, it, this was him trying to push the rules to the, to the outside edge. And, you know, he got caught and ultimately, you know, hurt his team. But, you know, this is the kind of gamble that these, these captains made. Yeah, it's it's really interesting stuff because you know obviously being up here in, in Toronto and Canada, ice hockey is the is the national passion, and that's that reality of really being aggressive on the ice, and then being, you know, the Canadian stereotype of overly polite off of it, even for these players. And you know, uh, being French Canadian myself, you you talk about Maurice Richard. He was the captain who made your list, and you know, describing the struggles of you know that emotional control, which you know these elite captains seem to have shared. Can you can you talk about his uh, his struggles there a little bit? Richard is such a fascinating character. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Canada, and, you know, Canada and New Zealand are similar in a lot of ways, I think, in, For in, sure. in yeah, mentality. And, and, you know, it's funny that it really breeds great leadership. I, I, I There were a lot of great hockey captains. I mean, Richard's Canadians won five cups, and so, you know, they were the, the no team's ever done that. But there were plenty of other examples um, in Canada. And, you know, New Zealand is an incredible sporting country. I mean, they've, they've, they punch way above their weight in almost every sport. Um, and, of course, two of the All Blacks rugby teams made my list. And, you know, I've seen a lot of similarities in that the, the, the culture of the country and the sporting culture of the country, I think, helps – create this 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 role and and support these kinds of captains but richard was unusual i mean i've never he's he of all the captains and on my list he was absolutely the most aggressive and has this incredible temper and you know it was it was what i didn't understand about richard was that there were really he really had two careers i mean he had this career that took him up to the riot in, in 1955 or, and, and that was, you know, he was the all time leading scorer and he broke the scoring record and, and he was the engine of the team's offense. He was absolutely their primary scorer, but he also just, you know, he was the most, one of the most penalized players in, in the NHL. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the league and the referees um, trying to keep the Canadians down. And, and this is obviously, uh, there was clearly truth to that, and Richard was high sticked and checked and punched, and you know more than any other player. Uh, but he retaliated, and I mean he he would he would get kicked out, he would put in the box, and you know he would get in horrible fights. And uh, if you know the story of the of the riot, I mean this this was this sort of came after this eruption he had. Uh, you know, where he uh, punched a, a sort of went savagely after a, a New York Rangers player and. Uh, was suspended, you know, very for the playoffs, and this uh, led to the famous riot after the uh, after the game against Detroit in the spring of '55. And you know, after that, this is what this is the thing that about emotional control. I mean, the the captains on this on the uh, of these teams were incredible in their ability to play through really tragic, difficult situations. Richard had never been that way. But after the riot, you know, they, they brought in Toe Blake, who, and the whole point of bringing in Blake was, as coach, was to, um, to try to 
keep a handle on Richard's temper. And, and Blake just worked on him and worked on him, like put your anger into the puck, put your anger onto the ice. And, you know, Richard, shockingly, like, you know, was able to retrain himself to walk away sometimes. And not only that, but he also stopped being the primary scorer. He started passing more. He started getting his teammates more involved. And they immediately won their first cup. And then, you know, after that, he, he became captain. And, you know, from the time he became captain, his penalty minutes dropped, you know, significantly every year. Um, his scoring totals also dropped and his teammates became more involved. And they were unstoppable. I mean, that was the difference. He started controlling his emotions and controlling his his explosive temper and getting his teammates being more of a team-oriented player. And that's when they became the dynasty that they were. And, you know, all, all of these captains, they, you know, either learned how to do that or, or kind of innately understood that they had to, that they could be aggressive, but they had to control themselves and they had to be able to play through emotional, whether it was, you know, tragic loss or pain or grief or uh, controlling their, their tempers. And that was a huge separator. A lot of the great captains who didn't make my list just weren't able to control their emotions. And, uh, and, and Richard figured out how to do it, which I think was an, a very under-discussed and underrated um, uh, achievement of his. Yeah, it's so interesting in the book. I mean, you go through the, you know, you mentioned the the uh, environment, the political environment at that time as well, and, and and what he had to sort of go through. That's a pretty pretty remarkable. Now you dispel a few myths, which you've already done one there in terms of the speeches that that players sort of did not give, and the other myth is that this conventional wisdom of the coach rather than the athletes uh, being the primary force behind really successful teams. And can you tell us sort of what you found in, in your research? That was that was a huge surprise. I I really thought that coaching. I, you know, I think a lot of us you know, who, who played sports as kids and didn't really advance beyond that. I mean, I think we have a an impression of coaches as being kind of unassailable authority figures. And, you know, I think that carries into the fan culture because, you know, more and more, especially today, I think people really look to the coach and you, know, you hear sportscasters saying, uh, you know, they, they describe as Bill Belichick's team or Phil Jackson's, you know, leads this team. I mean, you know, there's, there's this idea that coaches, because I think because they talk to us and because they're the, they, they speak for the team and they're more relatable, I think, to, to more people that, that we think that they are the primary engines of, of greatness. But what was just amazing was I looked at these 16 teams and I assumed that these coaches would have had great track records before these epic streaks and afterwards and you know they didn't and and in fact it was like one of these 16 coaches i think you could say was a legendary coach um uh tip to tail not you know including their entire career and in fact the majority of them had little to no coaching experience when they showed up or had even bad track records and, and weren't successful before or even after in fact some of these teams changed coaches in the middle of these winning streaks so it clearly wasn't uh, a matter of coaching and the coaches were all over the map in terms of their approach. And some of them were inspirational or some of them were tacticians, some of them weren't. And uh, there was really no similarity whatsoever between the coaches. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on this because I, I knew that it was controversial and that I really had to prove it. And so, you know, I went out and talked to Willie Davis, uh, who was uh, one of the cat, the defensive captain of the Green Bay Packers under Vince Lombardi, who you know is considered one of the great coaches of all time. 
And uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time talking to him about about this and, and looked at a lot of other coach-captain uh, relationships. And what I realized was that, you know, all the research, everything that I'd seen suggests that coaches, they, they do matter. I mean, and a great coach will have an appreciable effect on a team. But even the great coaches like Lombardi, um, they all had – this kind of partnership with a great captain. And, you know, in many cases, these captains were independent minded. I mean, they didn't always do what they were told. And, you know, Alex Ferguson uh, from Manchester United says this. I mean, he, he says that once the match started, the, the, everything moved beyond his control. And he really relied on his captains to, to enforce uh, the team's goals and, and um, strategy on the field. And so what I realized was that uh, even the greatest coaches, you know, will not be successful unless they have this partnership with a captain. And this can't just be, you know, I tell you what to do and you do it. I mean, the, these relationships were, were very complicated and, and these captains often did their own thing and ignored the coach and did something else. And uh, that's the key. So again, you know, even when you have these great coaches, whether it's Phil Jackson, Bill Belichick, Vince Lombardi, Alex Ferguson, I mean, their great periods of greatness were always associated with, um, with having a, a great captain and someone who was independent and, and sort of augmented their coaching and, and did their own thing sometimes on the field. So that, that was really my conclusion. I mean, having a great coach is, is not a bad thing, obviously, but without a captain um, as a sort of um, surrogate uh, on the field who, who sometimes doesn't listen to the coach, uh, the success doesn't come. Yeah, and that's really interesting as we move into today's modern sports world when, you know, things are changing, the amount of money that's involved, much younger athletes coming in and this idea of captaincy and how that's, you know, almost changing a little bit. You, you write a bit about the decline of captaincy. Can you give the listeners a little bit of a glimpse into that? Yeah, that's that's surprising. I mean, I, I um, as I was writing the book, I, I saw this happening. It was kind of amazing. I mean, a lot of teams – prominent teams either did away with the captaincy, um, you know, or entirely, or including seven NHL teams, you know, at the beginning of the season didn't have captains, which, which was amazing given that they're required to under, under league rules, but also just, you know, that's a sport that has always had a strong tradition of captaincy. But I think what's happened is that the economics of sports have changed so much and there's so much money coming in, um, mostly from television that really the, the, the point, is different. I mean, it used to be that, that you wanted to make money and to win. And and now, you know, under these giant television deals, uh, it's really about putting on a good show. And, you know, I think teams are t see themselves much more as entertainment businesses than they did before. And so what they've done is with all this money is they've really bid up the price of, of the um, marquee stars, the kind of people who draw a crowd and draw viewers. And that's superstars and coaches. Those are the people that, um, the public wants to see and the public wants to, to, to follow. And so what's happened on a lot of teams is that, you know, there's a superstar and a coach and you see this with the Cleveland Cavaliers and with LeBron James. For sure. Was, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he has more power than the coach in, in, in many cases, but what happens is leadership is now a tug of war really between the coach and the superstar player. And, you know, this is a, a financially driven, but that's the new model. And so a lot of teams just automatically give the captaincy to their best player. Or they don't name one at all. And the difference is the captains that I studied were, were 
they were not stars generally. They they were intermediaries. They served that intermediary role between the management and the other players. And they were independent. And then they would stand up against anyone if they thought they were wrong. And that's a lonely job. And it's also a job better done by someone who um, isn't a star, but kind of carries water for the team and plays a supporting role, um, who shows incredible doggedness and effort and uh, a genuine desire to win. And, you know, they're middle managers, basically. I mean, it's, it's middle managers are very, uh, they're not very sexy. And, you know, a lot of companies too are, are trying to do away with middle management so that they can have a, the star employees can can have a closer relationship with top management, and you know that's that's all of my research and some science that I've found really suggests that's just not the way to create an enduringly successful team. You really need someone in the middle, you know, who's arbitrating between the two sides, and that's what's been lost. And you know, I think teams are are believing that they. It's I think one of the problems is they teams and companies too don't really understand what great leadership looks like and and who great leaders are and what they really do and i think they have this kind of michael jordan impression that the captain of the team has to be this sensational outstanding person and those people don't come along very often so i think there's a temptation to say well maybe there's a different model maybe there's a different way uh, to lead a team. And, you know, that's, I think that's a mistaken notion. I think the problem is they're not looking in the right place. They're not, they're looking for the obvious leader whose leadership skills are clear and apparent to everyone. But the truth is that great leaders are not obvious and they're not the most talented, charismatic people. They're, they're, they're very functional. They carry water. They do what needs to be done. They communicate constantly with the, with the team. And that's not who we look for. And, and I think frustration is part of it. And I think economics are a part of it, but we've really moved away from that model. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to make any predictions, but I've never found a, a team that sustained a dynasty over a long time that, that used a model like that. Um, I, I don't think it's possible, frankly. Yeah, you do a great job in the last section there of, of going through the, the evidence uh, around, around that whole notion. So really, really well done. And Sam, I want to respect your time here this morning and, uh, you know, maybe finish off here with a little personal question. Can you tell us a little bit about sure. your, your morning routine? You know, do you start with coffee? Any writing rituals? What is your morning? Oh, God. Well, you know, I, I have a full-time job here at the Journal, so, you know, my my mornings are crazy. I, for the last few years, as I've finished this project, I, you know, I get up at four and, and I get to the office by about five or 5.30 and I, yeah, I work on the book until about 9.30 and then I start my other job and, you know, that keeps me here till about seven o'clock and then I go home and collapse. So, uh, but no, it's, it's every possible means of waking up. I mean, it, uh, five shot, you know, coffee and, uh, uh, you know, and I ride my bike in to sort of get the blood circulating and, you know, but that's, that's, uh, it's been pretty brutal. I can't wait until this is all uh, over and I can go back to taking my kids to school. Nice. I like it though. Caffeine and movement. That's a great way to start the day. Yeah. Really well done there. Right. Well, listen, I mean, the captain class, it's a phenomenal read, you know, if all the uh, sports fanatics out there, anyone looking for leadership insights and of course the psychology and the mindset piece is really, really fascinating stuff. Where can people pick up the book, Sam, and where can people stay connected with you and your work? 
Well, I'm on Twitter uh, and Facebook, and uh, I have a website, which is called bysamwalker.com, which um, has updates and information about the book. It uh, comes out on May 16, but um, it's, uh, it's up on uh, Amazon now, and all the major retailers are selling it. It should be in bookstores, airports, you know, Costco, you know, wherever you, wherever you shop soon. So, yeah, no, please pick one up. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the time again. And uh, thanks again for everyone else tuning in. As always, you can find all the links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you enjoyed the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Thanks again. See you next time. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.